The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is X, and this is The Candid Frame. A camera can serve as a passport. It's permission to enter the lives and worlds of people that we might not interact with otherwise. For a brief time, you're able to step out of your own world with all its commitments and obligations and demands, and you step into other people's lives and get a chance to see the world through their eyes. The camera can suddenly reveal how different and how similar we are, and sometimes it does that in the same photograph. Muir Vidler is a London-based photographer who is as much a cultural explorer as he is a photographer. Whether he's photographing a, a beauty contest in Libya, a transvestite bar in Istanbul, or photographing a comedian in his hotel room, Vidler creates images that possess a wonderful sense of humor. He's also a photographer that exemplifies how trusting your own curiosity can lead to some unexpected and fulfilling opportunities. So where are you actually in, uh, are you in London or are you elsewhere? I'm in London. Yeah, I'm in London just now. Um, okay. I'm from Scotland originally, but I live here now. Yeah, you moved around. Uh, a little bit. Well, I lived in California a bit when I was growing up actually in San Diego. Um, I still got family out there in San Diego. Whereabouts are you in California? I'm in uh, Altadena. So it's like north of Pasadena by about 15 minutes. Oh, okay. I think I know what you mean. Yeah, it's about yeah. 30 minutes downtown from downtown Los Angeles. Right. Okay. I love it out there. We were on the verge about four or five years ago of, of um, trying to move over to LA, but it kind of petered out. Uh-huh. Well, you came to my attention because uh, I, I saw an article on your Rebel Without a Paw series. Oh, yeah. And I looked at that work and I just thought, oh, that's so awesome. I got to talk to this guy and find out no, more no. about it. Thank you. Uh, t- t- tell me about how the, the story behind those images. The story behind those images, they, it started for me with the guy, um, Adrian Delgoffi, who's the, in the photo, the guy with all the tattoos holding a skateboard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, to go back to the beginning. So this is, I was at photojournalism, doing a photojournalism course at Atlanta College of Printing, a one-year postgraduate. And... My day job, or my night job, I was staff photographer for Boys Magazine, which is a kind of gay scene magazine, okay. which I stumbled into because I knew a guy that ran a club in Brixton. It was a pretty good job. It would have been a great job if I was lucky enough to be gay, which unfortunately I'm not, but it was still fun. <laughs> and uh, Adrian, one night I was photographing Love Muscle in, uh, at the Fridge Club, and Adrian was just dancing by himself, wearing kind of leather chains and harnesses, and um, I took a few photos of him and we just got talking and he was one of these guys, as soon as I started talking to him, he was very well-spoken, obviously a very smart, very sharp guy. So we had a good chat and then I thought he'd be great to do a portrait of sometime. Um, so it was just, we'd stayed in touch and talked a couple of times and it was during that process that I kind of thought, you know what, that'd be a great series is to try and find a few other people that are aging disgracefully, that are getting a bit older and still <laughs> fun and still living life and... And uh, refusing to grow up, I guess. 
so he was the first one that kicked it off. And then I just started looking around for other people. And, uh, and yeah, it went on from there. So how did you go about finding, finding subjects? Did you just start, you know, putting out through word of mouth that you were looking for people? Did you post somewhere, you know, there? It was mostly it, uh, quite a few of them for just getting out and about, actually. I mean, that's the problem a lot of the time, I think, with being able to social media and internet searches and stuff like that, that it, it, you can end up relying on it too much, you know. One of the first people that I met was a club in North London called the Tennessee Rock and Roll Club that's been going for years and years. And Mick and Peggy Warner, the, the pair I photographed who are the um, rock and roll kind of teddy boy couple sitting on the sofa inside the house. Mm-hmm. I met them there. I, I just went to a Saturday night club there, met them, got talking to them. And then the other guy that I met there was Frank Lacey, Frankie Knuckles Lacey. And he is, he's been like, a, you know, in London kind of teddy boy scene for, I don't know, 40 years or something now, I guess. Uh, and he told me the shadows um, were playing a gig that night. Oh, not the Shadows, the Comets were playing a gig, as in, um, who were the Comets? Frankie Valley and the Comets, wasn't it? Anyway, one of the original rock and roll bands. So he was a roadie for them. So I ended up shooting those guys as well. We went on tour for a couple of days. And uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, that's it. So I had a mental, okay. a mental block there. Bill Haley and the Comets, often considered the kind of first rock and roll band. So they came over from America, those guys, and they were all, I mean, I think the youngest was about 78. And um, Frank who was maybe 60, 65 at that time, was the kind of youngster. So he was the roadie, and then I went taking photos of them on the tour, and then I, I did a portrait with Frankie afterwards. I think that's in the Tennessee Rock and Roll Club. Um, and then others, I just, you know, an older tattooed person was, was kind of something that I first thought of. And Isabel Varley's kind of famous on the, on the tattoo circle, so I got, I got in touch with her that way. I can't remember who else it was. Oh, yeah, there was Paul Elvis Chan, the... Uh, the Elvis, uh, Chinese Elvis impersonator. Yeah. He was just a guy that I'd heard about. So I went to his restaurant in South London and saw him there and he was fantastic. He was great. So I just knew he'd be a good photo. So it was just, yeah, a lot of it was getting out and about, asking people all the time. And a lot of people had other, I think it was Adrian that I photographed. He knew um, the skinhead guy that I shot as well, John Byrne. So he put me in touch with him. So yeah, a lot of it just kind of followed on from, from people I was already photographing. You know, the great thing about it is that they're not just really interesting photographs. They're interesting people. Yeah. I mean, the, okay, yeah no. this, the story of Isabel Varley, I mean, the fact that she didn't get her first tattoo until her 40s. I know. Yeah. 48. And then, oh, my God. And she just went full bore. I mean, you look at her and she's fully sleeve, man. And, I know, and I she's know. got the piercings and all that. And, and I just love the fact that her husband that looks like he's a, a professor yeah. Uh, in his slippers, you know, <laughs> know, and you contrast that couple. I mean, he doesn't have a single, you know, piece of ink on him. I know. He's just the most typical looking kind of suburban British guy. That's, well, I was lucky that, I mean, there I was shooting in their house and I did obviously mostly shooting her. Uh-huh. And then in, in a moment of uh, uncommon inspiration, I suddenly thought, you know what, the two of them together is great. So I think I just shot like five or six frames of the two of them together. But it leapt out as soon as I was looking at the edit. I was like, that's got to be the shot. Oh, yeah. It, it was kind of the same for me photographing the fire breather, Danny Lynch, yeah. who was a great guy to shoot. But for me, the, well, the reason I chose that shot, I mean, he's a sword swallower too. So I've got lots of photos of him out in the garden, sort of swallowing swords and breathing fire. But the thing I loved about that photo was his wife going into the house in the background to make me a cup of tea and the dog and the car. It's just the most suburban kind of, uh, you know, backdrops, which contrasted great with him. 
So um, as I was shooting, I kind of realized I was, I was looking for those moments, you know, that are just kind of everyday contrasting moments with these kind of extraordinary people, you know. I mean, and there's no more contrasting a moment as that guy who's naked on that park bench with those two guys in suits. Oh, yeah. Eating okay. their lunches. Yeah, yeah. How did that image happen? He's Rory Clark, his name is. He was, I can't remember how I, how I first heard of him, but he was part of a group called the Freedom to Be Yourself campaign, uh, which were campaigning for the right to be naked in public. He actually, yeah, I know how I met him. They, they had a protest in Trafalgar Square where they all kind of got naked, and I just went down to photograph it because it sounded like a fun thing to shoot. And met him there and realized he'd be a good portrait for the series. So, that, that we decided to meet up in the city in London to just because it would be a nice contrast him naked in the streets um, with all the kind of city bankers and stuff like that. So, he's walking around with kind of like a, a robe around him. We saw those two guys sitting on the bench, and I said to him, just pop the robe off, go and sit down next to them. And Rory, who doesn't need any encouragement to be, <laughs> you know, with, with his clothes off in public and jump on someone, loved it. So he sat down, I shot about three frames. We didn't say a word to the two guys and both stood up and walked off, which looking back now is, is kind of rude. I think if I did that now, I'd probably at least say to the guys, hey, I hope you don't mind taking a quick photo. But, um, but that's what worked great about the photos. Those guys are completely oblivious, it looks, and yeah. always sitting there with it all hanging out. You know, I make a lot of these shots really interesting is that they're environmental portraits. Yeah. And the space that these people occupy and sometimes the people that are in the photographs in, in, the, in the photographs with them really help to make make the shot. I know you do a lot of people photographs for, you know, your editorial and your commission work. Yeah. How important have you found that being able to include other elements in the frame and not just put someone against a white seamless makes in the effectiveness of your photographs? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. I think about that a lot these days. That's something that I've, I've almost tried to fight against sometimes. Naturally, for reasons I couldn't really explain, I guess, I always want to have a wider angle lens, take a step back and see the bigger picture uh, and try and, get some, try and get a lot of information in the frame. And then I look at photos. I mean, when I went to college, I knew very little about photography. Avedon was, was one of the first portrait photographers I saw that I loved. And to me, it's, you know, incredibly impressive over and over again how you can just get someone against a white wall and take these incredibly iconic photos uh, with nothing, nothing there, you know, just a person on a white wall. Um, so sometimes I think I, I need to move in close. I need to simplify things. But I just naturally, I don't know why, I always find myself taking a step back and getting the wider angle lens on. And it's just... That's the way I see things, I guess. And um, I love it. I mean, the series that I'm working on now, the big overall series that the old Rebels photos are part of is um, about contradictions, cultural contradictions, really. So that kind of thing for me, it's like you need to see, you need things to contradict, basically. You need, the, you need different things in the lens, different, in the frame, different things going on. Um, people interacting with other people, they're with the background, and um, so that's it just naturally slips into doing that. And that's kind of the way I see things now, I guess. I appreciate the fact that you bring a sense of humor to a lot of the images. Ah, cool. Thank you. You know, yeah. and it's just, it's just really refreshing stuff to see. I mean, I, I look at a lot of editorial work and I yeah. think that some of the stuff is a little bit too contrived to, for my taste. Sure. And I think that you just have a wonderful way of sim seeing. And I think, you know, part of it is probably that you work so simply that it just allows yeah. you to just focus on you know, what you're trying to capture in the frame, but it really speaks to me. Uh, oh, I, I just, I look through all those photographs and I'm going, wow, that's just great, great stuff. 
Because yeah, I think that's good to hear. Yeah, because I think some people are just so get, especially photographers, they get fixated with all these photographers that are just you know using all these bells and whistles in order to make their yeah, pictures. Yeah. And I go, yeah, but. <laughs> You know, if that wasn't there, would it still be interesting photograph? And I know, most times it's not. You know, it's like a writer sitting there with a thesaurus and picking out some big words. You know, exactly. You, kind of, you see the the mechanics of it. I mean, the photography world, I, I think, is it's a conservative world. Photography, I think, more so than most other art forms. I mean, in the art world, you've got you know, I mean, I photographed uh, Takashi Murakami a couple of years ago in front of a massive, you know. 12 foot gold penis sculpture that he'd done mm -hmm. and uh people like jeff coons or whatever that do art it's fun you know and it and it's also it's uh irreverent is the word i'm looking mm -hmm. for so it's kind of fun and irreverent and there's not a lot of photography that's done like that i think the photography what a lot of people see it you've got to appear serious and very kind of straight-faced and there are not many photographers i think they bring a real sense of fun and a sense of humor to um to the work so that's something i'm always looking for you know i always want to try and do that it seems like you're you're really interested in cultural phenomenons uh yeah not just the the pop stuff that it seems like everyone is aware of mm. it's just a lot of stuff that i think goes underneath the radar you have this series that you did on uh, israeli metal oh yeah in yeah. tel aviv which yeah you know, God knows that music is universal. Different music cultures happen everywhere. But I wasn't expecting to see it. Um, how did you discover that whole whole scene? Was it part of an assignment or, or was that it... That wasn't part of an assignment, no. That was, I can't remember. I read somewhere that there was a death metal festival in, um, in Israel, in Tel Aviv, um, called the Metalist Festival. Um, and I just thought, I mean, it was like one of those one paragraph in a music magazine, little sidebar stories. And I just thought that's, you know, I hadn't heard of that. I thought the same as you. I thought that's great. I mean, Israel is one place. That, I mean, the photography world is rife with cliche. And Israel, you tend to just see one side of, of life from Israel through the photography world. Mm -hmm. um, so that struck my attention. I thought that's, you know, it's interesting. And I was lucky enough, the guy that runs that festival, I got in touch with. And he turned out to be a great guy. He was really into the idea of me coming over to shoot. Um, so I just booked a ticket and went over and he introduced me to everyone in the kind of Israeli metal scene. And the bit, it, this doesn't really come across in the photos so well, but the story of it um, is where there's a couple of Palestinian uh, metal fans that were at that festival as well. And they were friends, they had Israeli friends because they were all into death metal. You know, there was kind of Satan bringing peace to the Holy Lands was, was the kind of way I looked at it. <laughs> And that was great for me. But the, the thing, I mean, like I was saying, the, the big, like, if there is a kind of overall theme to what I try and do with my personal work, it's, um, it's contradictions. So that for me, come, it was the same thing as the old rebels. It was like, you see photos of older people, you don't expect them to be skinheads or fire breathers or, you know, crazy tattooed, pierced, you know, and the, and so that, that was the same with Israel. So this is all part of a, a book project that I'm, just putting together now, really, um, called Everything is True is the title that I'm working on. Um, and the idea with that is it's con cultural contradictions, sometimes visual contradictions, and sometimes in quite a kind of, you know, in a more thoughtful way, like the Israeli one, and sometimes just in a silly, frivolous kind of, you know, visual pun kind of way. Um, but that's the overall thing I'm working on. So that Israeli death metal uh, series kind of worked in with that theme, I think. Well, one of the things that couldn't be any more surreal 
was the mm-hmm. beauty pageant that you photographed in Libya yeah. during the reign of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And I couldn't imagine anything stranger <laughs> to go and photograph. How, how did that come about? Tell, tell us about those images. That was very similar to the Israeli one, actually. That was just a little one-paragraph sidebar news story I read in the Sunday Times saying there's going to be a death metal, there's going to be a living beauty pageant. So, I mean, it was literally just, it was one paragraph, I think. So I got in touch with a journalist, uh, an Irish guy, Endelahi, and I asked him about it, and he, he told me a little bit about it. He said, I really know very little. It was, he knew somehow, I can't remember how, the Lebanese organizer um, of the pageant. Uh, so that was where the story had originally come from. So Enda seemed to, we got on well too, so we kind of stayed in touch. And I always said to him, listen, let's go out and do it, you know. So we pitched it to the Sunday Times magazine, who I worked for a lot at the time, and they said no. <laughs> they, they said, you know, if you do it, bring it to us, but, you know, we're not going to pay for you to go for 10 days in Libya. So Enda and I, he was, I don't think he was on the staff of the Sunday Times, but he freelanced for them regularly. The short version is we completely blagged it and told the Lebanese guy that we'd been commissioned by the Sunday Times when we hadn't. So they took us along. I mean, we flew out there with them. We spent, I think it was a week in Libya, visited Gaddafi's house, visited Gaddafi at his house. And there were quite a few occasions. I mean, there's one time when we were at Gaddafi's house and it was, Gaddafi came out to meet us. There was all these crazed Libyan kind of bodyguards or government guys, I don't know who they were, intense-looking Libyan men with kind of shiny suits and big, thick moustaches. And um, there was a couple times where Enda, Enda and I looked at each other and thought, no one knows we're here. <laughs> we're not working for anyone, you know. <laughs> we're meant to be working for the Sunday Times, but the Sunday Times don't know we're here. So the whole thing, yeah, we blagged it. Unfortunately, we got back, gave it to the Sunday Times magazine. They loved it and published it. The spin-off from that actually was the American girl won the beauty pageant which was all a complete scam anyway, the whole beauty pageant. I've got no idea still what the motivation for anyone involved was, but it, was, um, it wasn't in any way a kind of real beauty pageant. Um, but anyway, so the American girl, they took back two, so two months later for a kind of diplomatic trip, supposedly, around, around Libya. So we went back with her the second time um, and met Gaddafi again, went out and ended did a short um, interview with him then. And I did a portrait when I wasn't allowed to actually speak to him. So I just walked around him for 10 seconds, taking as many photos as I could while he stared off into the distance. One of the, my favorite shots is the shot of Miss America at the Libyan Women's Military Academy. Oh, yeah. And that is, that. Such a, <laughs> that is such an image that is so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it, right. it seems so awkward and tense and it's... And also, it's just kind of hilarious at the same time. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear you say that, because that's exactly what I liked about that photo. That was, well, they, they took her back, Tekka Zendik, her name was. And um, so they took her back as the winner of the beauty pageant. And like I say, for reasons I still don't understand at all, they made her the honorary Libyan consul to America, which supposedly was the first diplomatic link between Libya and America in 20 years. Um, and Tekka was a very nice girl, but she's not a diplomat. So they, um, that day they took her to visit uh, the Libyan Women's Military Academy. That was, I mean, the guy in the photo, I can't remember what his title, but he's, I mean, really high up in the Libyan army, or was presumably really high up in the Libyan army. So they sat her down with him, and they all sat down, had a cup of tea, smiled at each other, and had no idea what to say. <laughs> so everyone kind of just stood there, you know, sat around, staring into the distance, well, Enda and I kind of shuffled around. I took a couple of photos. 
And uh, then everyone just kind of got up, shook hands again and wandered off. That was it. So how did you get started in, in all this? You mentioned before that taking a, a journalism class, but did you have formal study as a, as, as a photographer? What, what's your story with respect to that? The story is that the first thing I got into photography, I, I had no uh, real knowledge or interest in photography. When I was at university, about 20 years old, maybe, I was studying sociology, and I just started to read the photography books in the library when I was kind of trying to avoid writing my essays. And um, <laughs> Ouija and Harry Benson, particularly, I've, uh, I got really into. For me, like Harry Benson, the, I mean, is mostly famous for all the Beatles photos now. Mm -hmm. and, um, but all those, I mean, he was staff photographer for the Daily Express for years, I think. So looking through all his books, it just, I loved the, the photography, but I loved the life more than anything. I thought that looks great. I mean, I don't want to sit in a, you know, enclosure writing sociology essays all my life. That, you know, I want to be out on the first American tour of the Beatles and, you know, whatever, shooting JFK and all that. So anyway, that got me to photography a little bit. I knew nothing about it and had no skills at all. And after I left university, through a little advert I saw somewhere, I applied for a job as a cruise ship photographer and got it and did that for a year and a half, which, as you can imagine, isn't the most creatively demanding photography job. Um, but it's a great way to learn. It's a great way to learn technical stuff and it's a great way to learn how to shoot fast. I mean, you shoot, you know, 20 rolls of film a day, seven days a week and develop them and print them and everything. So I was thinking that the other day, actually, the way that I got, I got like one day's training and then just left by myself on, on a cruise ship as the only photographer. But it was a Nikon FM2 camera, a Met 60 flash gun. And I got taught the Sony 16 rule is basically stand outside and it's 250th of a second F11 when it's bright sunshine. So I still shoot like that all the time. I still shoot outside with a Mets flash gun at 250 F11. And uh, <laughs> this is exactly the way I used to shoot tourists arriving on the cruise ship, standing next to the kind of welcome aboard sign. Um, so it was with the money I saved up doing that that I came back to London. I did a one-year postgraduate diploma in photojournalism at London College of Printing, which was great, a really, really great course, met great people on it. And that was the thing that got me, that got me rolling from that. Um, I mean, that course, I was lucky with that course that I was on a really good year. So there was five of us that set up at the end of it a little photojournalism agency. And one of the guys uh, was Marcus Bleasdale, who's now uh, shoots for National Geographic, I think. He's in uh, Seven, the agency. So he had a bit of money as well from a previous job. So, so anyway, the five of us set that up. And that we went to Perpignan, the uh, Visa Polimage Photojournalism Festival. And that really launched all of us. You know, we all had good projects that we'd shot. We met lots of people and working together, it just, you know, we all did way better than if we tried to do things ourselves. So that's I still kind of ride the momentum um, of that moment to this day, I think, you know. You were led to a couple of the projects by stuff that you read in, in the paper. Um, yeah. So how does that, you know, you're doing a lot of work, editorial and commission work. So how is that coming about? Is it largely because you're basically pitching ideas or you're being approached to do, you know, certain, certain projects or create certain images? It's, um, it's a real mix of stuff that it's, I mean, all the stuff that I've done that I really like, that feels really my kind of photography, I've just got up myself and done it. But I've always, I mean, the way that I try and do things, the Libyan story, the Israeli one, the Rebels Without Pause, it's always, I want to go and shoot some of myself, fund it myself, do exactly the way I want, and then give it to a magazine 
to make my money back and then give it to um, the galleries and represent by two galleries and hopefully sell some prints. So that's my, that, I mean, that's the ideal way for me to work is like that. But then sometimes I get commissions that lead on to really great projects or great photos or there's a kind of spin-off from it. I mean, there's a photo on, on my um, website somewhere of a tribe from Papua New Guinea having a tea party with a family in a kind of um, in a farmhouse in Wales. And that was some crap TV program they were making where they'd sent a British family to live with a tribe in Papua New Guinea. The spin-off program was the tribe came over and stayed with the British family here. So I, sh- I got the commission to shoot that for a magazine and then just stayed and shot some photos for myself afterwards. And, you know, that's a kind of, like, I mean, how can you set up a situation where you've got three people from a stony tribe in Papua New Guinea in someone's kitchen having a tea party, you know? So, um, so sometimes you get lucky with things like that. Sometimes, you know, I just have to get, get up and kind of do it myself. So, yeah, it's a real mix. I can imagine that, that there's a certain risk involved because you could be working on these personal projects, but there's no guarantee that you're going to make any money from it, that a, a, yeah. a magazine's going to pick it up or that you're going to sell, and, sell any prints. So it's... It's a risk that a lot of photographers aren't willing to make because they want to make a living. So they end up doing work that's less than satisfying. Yeah, always I dream, guess so. Always dreaming of, wow, can't wait to, you know, have an opportunity to do something that I really want to do. But it seems like you're just going for it and yeah. are, are somehow been able to, you know, make a living from it. But to talk about those considerations that you have to make in terms of going, hey, I really want to do this. But I also have to pay pay the bills. What kind of thoughts and, and considerations do you have to make before you take it on? Or are you just gonna go, I'm just I wanna shoot this more so than anything else. I'm just gonna go for it and somehow it'll work out. It's it, a lot of the time it's like that. I mean, I, like I say, ideally I want to get something published after I shoot it. So I mean I know and there's some stuff I shot that's uh, personal projects I've gone and gone some and spent a bit of money on. Um, Istanbul, there's a transsexual club in Istanbul that I shot. I mean, no one really wants to publish those photos, which I kind of knew at the time, but I thought, you know, no one's going to crack open the Sunday Times magazine or the New York Times magazine with a breakfast and want to see photos of, like, big, burly, hairy, you know, Turkish transsexuals. So there are things like that, but then I just think that's, you know, that's they're going to be good photos, you know. And I've sold a couple of those prints actually through the gallery, so that even kind of, you know... I didn't end up out of pocket. I mean, I think the thing is people that sit around, or people that only do commissioned work, which I do a lot of, I do a lot of commissioned work, but you're always, you're shooting with someone else in mind all the time. And you're never going to end up with a book or a portfolio or something like that that's your work, you know? It's going to have a a lot of you in it, but it's never going to be 100% you. So, I mean, a lot of the time, I I know that I'm probably not going to make money on something, and I'll still go ahead and shoot it because... It's all just part of the, you know, it's all part of the long-term game, you know. There's a poker player I once, professional poker player, had been interviewed after he won, I think it was a World Series, he won 100,000 or something. And the guy asked him, so what are you going to do with all the money? He said, I don't know, I'll probably lose it. And the guy <laughs> laughed and he goes, well, you know what, it's all part of the same game. <laughs> because, you know, we're all in the same game for 20 years, you know, sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. So... I kind of look at it like that sometimes. It's like, you know, you can't think too short term. It's like, you're in a, you know, if you're a photographer for your career, a picture you could take 20 years ago could suddenly lead on to something amazing, you know? So it's, you just got to kind of keep your head down and keep doing what you want. And uh, like I say, I can make enough of a living doing commission work 
that I don't have to worry about getting kicked out of my house or anything. So, you know, it's, uh, I got to try and stay kind of open-minded and just try and stay positive and keep doing things. Well, and talk about risk, this, this, this project you just mentioned about the, uh, the, the transvestite club in, uh, in Istanbul, uh, yeah. there was no guarantee you would even get to photograph in any of these places and you went there anyway. How, how did you gain entry into that community? Because you're, you're in a country where that sort of, uh, lifestyle and, 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 and that, that kind of community is very frowned upon, if not downright illegal. Uh, yeah. So getting people to trust you with a camera, particularly when you're a foreigner on top of that, uh, you know, you, you, you're putting a lot of obstacles between you and being able to make the photographs. So how did, how did you work that out? Uh, I'm still not sure that I did work out really. It's, um, that club's called the Sahara club and it was, I mean, a, a dingy, dodgy little club. And my plan was to get there, meet someone, ask them, you know, Hey, can I wander around, take a few photos? I won't offend anyone and you know, whatever. And I never found anyone that claimed to be in any position of authority or responsibility at the place. It wasn't that they told me, no, you can't take photos, but no one would answer me. Everyone passed the buck. So I just started hanging around and taking photos without any permission or any kind of um, agreement with anyone. And I had my trusty Met 60 flash gun from my cruise ship days, which is huge, as you probably know, pumps out a massive amount of light. So it wasn't exactly very subtle. But that club is, the weird thing about that club is a lot of the transsexuals that go um, are in kind of groups, they know each other, whatever. And then there's lots of single guys that go. And they spend a lot of time just standing against the wall, kind of looking around them, um, looking kind of intense and uh, unsure of what to do, really. So another guy kind of walking around, um, looking a bit baffled as well, like I was, didn't look as out of place as you might think. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then, I mean, I realized, like, the more, the more, the longer I take photos, the more I'm able to realize what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. And I know what I'm good at is taking photos in weird situations, um, particularly in kind of uh, nighttime, slightly dark, dingy situations where people don't really expect a photographer. Um, and I'm not quite sure why. It's probably not for very good reasons, if I'm honest, but I'm, I know I'm quite good at doing that. Um, I'm not particularly good with, I don't know, if you gave me a group shot of the royal family to do, I probably wouldn't do it quite as well. But if you give me a bunch of kind of, you know, drunk transsexuals down a Turkish alleyway at three in the morning, then I can kind of move in that world somehow. But you did have a, you did have a confrontation there. Oh. I did have a confrontation, yeah. I got, um, so every, everyone that I was shooting there, I've tried to, I wasn't going around and shooting without anyone being aware that I was taking a photo of them. But I wasn't asking people either. I was kind of like, you know, stand in front of someone, they could see me, I'd take a shot, they might wave me away, or they might smile or whatever. And there was one, there, so there was a moment when, I don't think I'd actually photographed these guys, but they must have just seen the light, the flash, and just turned around. And I got dragged and pulled up the stairs and pushed down this alleyway where about three Turkish guys shouted at me and smacked me around the head. Um, and I opened the camera, ripped the film out, <laughs> threw it on the floor and said, there you go and walked quickly away. Um, so yeah, that was, I think, the last time I went to the Sahara Club. <laughs> I don't think I went back after that. <laughs> the story of a photograph isn't over until you've had the opportunity to share it. 
Yes, you can have the satisfaction of looking at it on your computer or even a print, but you've not fulfilled the full potential of a photograph until someone has seen it. Because ultimately, a photograph is about expression. It's about communication. So leaving a photograph on a hard drive is like writing a play and never getting it on stage in front of an audience. The web provides the most democratic way of finding an audience for your work, and your website is the means by which you do that. And Squarespace provides the means to do that in an easy and affordable way. Its beautiful templates and drag and drop interface allows you to customize the look of your site to suit your personal needs and preferences. It's not a cookie cutter site that has to look like everyone else's. You have the control to make something unique to you and it can all happen in just a couple of hours. But you can find out for yourself how easy and fun it can be. Start your free trial today with no credit card at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. But as you mentioned, you're you're going into communities where they aren't, aren't expecting a, a photographer, uh, yeah. and that's even the case with some of the, I guess the music scenes or club scenes or you know um, scenes where people are like um, just into something, whether it's a bar, whether it's a music. Yeah. Uh, do you find that those situations, that those those interactions, that people are so into what they're doing that they just think that you're supposed to be there? Yeah, sometimes I guess. Yeah, I guess it's that. And also, I mean, I, I think people like being photographed, not necessarily because they're vain and they think they're so fabulous, but it's you're showing an interest in what they're doing. You know, they, it's a, you know, it's uh, you're verifying uh, what they're doing in some ways. Um, so, you know, I think I think people like that, um, and. You know, as long as you can do it, uh, I mean, there's some people that are, that are just bad at that. They're, they can't pull off the, um, uh, I don't know, they don't have the social skills, let's say. And I don't mean you need to be really friendly or charming or something like that. But it's, um, I mean, I, I started, as I say, doing cruise ship photography. And cruise ship photography is, is I mean, one of, the, one of the many reasons that make it a really shit job is what you're doing is photographing people over and over again, printing the photos up, put them on the wall and trying to sell them to them. And anyone with half a brain who's been on a, a cruise before knows, I don't want to be bothered. I don't want my time wasted by you mm-hmm. standing me in front of some sunset painted backdrop and taking a photo. So you're pushy. You have to be really pushy. And that, and then, and then the first job I did after that was doing the um, gay club photography. It's kind of the same. I mean, that's, people love being photographed at clubs but there was, there was a, quite a few clubs I shot that you couldn't get in to take photos of at all if you didn't work for one of the scene magazines. Um, Fist, well, actually one of the old Rebels guys I photographed that's sitting in his back garden with a kind of latex gear. Yeah. Sid, Sid I met him at Fist, which is a kind of legendary um, uh, S&M club that's, I mean, just as full on as, and as extreme as, it, as you can imagine. Um, and there's no way you can walk around there taking photos unless you're with, as I was in this case, Boys Magazine. So I guess, I never really thought about it, but I guess those two things quite early on in my career, they didn't necessarily make me really good at doing that, but they gave me a thick skin. You know, they gave me a thick skin that I thought I can be somewhere where people aren't really expecting you to be 
or even sometimes don't want you to be and tiptoe through it somehow and try and get a few photos here and a few photos there without offending anyone and you know just trying to yeah try and pull it off without without really uh ruffling too many feathers i guess do you find yourself shooting both with film or digital or do you favor one or the, over the other um commission stuff is almost always digital i still shoot some stuff in film um and then personal stuff i'm shooting a lot of film still but, i mean the reason like film stuff i think still looks better for me especially when you know when i'm doing exhibitions and um and big print but the reason that i shoot film more than anything with the personal stuff is just the way that the actual process of it i mean i shoot a lot on um a Bronica 6.6 square format with a waist level viewfinder. And that just forces you to slow down and think about what you're doing and set the camera up and work out where you, you know, where the camera's going to go. You have to change, you have to stop every 12 frames and, you know, change roles where you quite often something, you know, digital, I quite often find myself just, I've shot 200 frames before and I know what I've done, you know? So that, yeah, that's one thing I really like about film. It just forces you to slow down and think about what you're doing. There's a, there's a, on your site, you have some work that you did with Shakira for her, uh, um, nonprofit oh, yeah. in Columbia. How did that come about? Um, that was a commission, uh, the Sunday times magazine. So that was, um, I guess the, I can't remember what journal, oh, yeah, it was with the journalist, Amy there from the Sunday times magazine. So she got invited by Shakira's PR to go along on it. Um, they had three or four magazines, I guess, following her, following her along for that trip. But that again was another kind of. I had a nice kind of spin-off of personal um, stuff from that as well because we spent, I think we spent two or three days with Shakira and then the last day and night we were in Bogota where I went out and shot some photos um, by myself in Santa Fe, the kind of red light area in the street, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I still, they're going to be part of the book project I'm doing. They're going to be an exhibition I'm uh, doing quite soon in November. So yeah, that was a really nice kind of spin-off. And that was, whenever I'm going anywhere like that, like I'd never been to Colombia before and Colombia's, I mean, it's got to be a great place to take photos of people. You know, there's like, Colombian people are, you're going to find some interesting people in Colombia and Bogota for sure. So, um, so I always try and if I'm going somewhere like that, find something else uh, that I can go and shoot when I'm not doing the commissioned work um, and try and escape for a night or something and run out and do something else. So when you're going out and you're doing this commission work, are you always looking for opportunities to do your own work? Even if you're doing an assignment, are you always looking for opportunities to make the kinds of images that you really gravitate to? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, every time I pick up a camera, I I guess I got that somewhere in my mind. Um, And it's, I mean, doing, I mean, that's one thing I love about photography is you can be taking photos of the most banal situation or person and something great will spin out of it. And, uh, and you never, I mean, a lot of the time you can see it perhaps, but a lot of the time you just need to recognize it. You know, you just need to, you need to see that the opportunity is there, you know? I mean, I did a big shoot for Tatler magazine recently and it was like a, a conference in a big, um, stately home here it, for people that in, inherited castles that needed to make a living out of them, that needed to work out how to make a profit. So it was kind of Spanish royalty and, uh, you know, all sorts of all around Europe, um, kind of uh, uh, royalty or um, what do you call it, landed gentry, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they were paying to find out, to, you know, find out how to make money from their castles or whatever, which isn't the kind of thing, you know, that sounds like a great project for my own personal work. But by the end of the night, it was kind of three in the morning and everyone was on the dance floor going crazy. Was, you know, there was, it just turned into a really fun party. And in situations like that, you can get great photos. For me, anyway, I love 
you know, situations like that to, to photograph people because people are having fun, people are, they're being themselves, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was just a couple of weeks ago, even situations like that, you can, out of a commission that doesn't sound that exciting, great things can kind of spin out of it as well, I think. You said that you're represented and you, you sell prints through, through galleries. Yeah. How, do, how differently do you have to think about your photographs that end up s selling in a gallery as opposed to images that get used in a, in a magazine or a newspaper article? Well, I don't think about it too much, really. It's all, um, I mean, I, I don't know if this is an unusual kind of career or, or if a lot of other photographers are like this, but I mean, the, the gallery work I start getting into, Rove Gallery here in London, I'm represented by him, and that started with Kenny Schachter, um, the guy who owns Rove, saw the photo of Israeli death metal photos in ID magazine here. And it was the, um, he got in touch with me because he wanted to buy the print of um, Haim Benyamini, the, um, the guy smoking the bong with the big mm -hmm. uh, yeah. the tattoo on his tummy. And um, so Kenny, I sold a print of that when he asked to see some other work. And we did an exhibition and we started doing art fairs and everything went really well. So still, I mean, a lot of the time, I mean, it's like I'm saying earlier, I'm taking photos because I, because it's what I like, what I'm interested in. And sometimes it ends up in a gallery wall, sometimes it ends up in a magazine, sometimes it ends up under my bed. But it's, um, I try, you know, I mean, there, there are days where I'm, you know, shooting parties for Tatler magazine. I'm an editorial photographer. There's days when I'm out shooting something in the street by myself, and there's days when I'm an art photographer because I've got an exhibition on somewhere. So it's, um, it's all... It's just different slants, really, of, of the same work, you know, diff different ways or different kind of avenues, uh, different mediums to show the same work. Um, and a lot of the time it's just interpretation, you know, it's just sometimes, you know, there's some days someone will see me as an art photographer and there's other days someone will see me as an editorial photographer and, you know. In order to do this kind of work, you constantly have to be hustling. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, you can't be you can't be on your laurels. You can't just be making just making photographs in order to make a career and a living out of that. Was that something that you feel like you you learned as a result of just getting thrown into this, or was or did you always feel like you had that sort of tendency to be really aggressive about pursuing things that you wanted even before you picked up a camera? Uh, no, I don't think I'm aggressive about things like that then or now. I mean, I'm kind of, I mean, the way that it's worked for me, I guess, is I've had a, like a few peaks of projects, of bits of my career that the momentum has then kind of kept me going for a while. And like, I never really set out to shoot portraits, but because I shot, you know, series that, that turned out to be very popular, like the, the old Rebels photos, then I started getting asked by magazines to shoot portraits. Um, and I find out that I liked it and that I'm good at it. So that I just kind of fell into really. Um, and, but I don't, I'm not, you know, one thing I'm not good at is getting out hustling work really. You know, I get work that comes to me because people know me, they see my photos around. So I hustle a little bit, of course, but in another way, I mean, I guess like, like I was saying earlier that I go, um, you know, I try and shoot my own stuff that's just my own stuff that isn't a commission from someone, so it's just, you know, my own voice, really. And I guess one of the reasons I do that is because I'm not particularly good at going out and hustling stuff um, and getting lots of, you know, lucrative kind of uh, assignments. Um, but then that feeds off into the other work as well. You know, people see projects that I've shot that they like and then they want to give me jobs to shoot this or, you know, have an exhibition here or something like that. I don't know. It's, it's a good and bad thing, I guess, being able to, to hustle 
uh, well in, in, the, in the photography world, I think. There are a couple of portraits that I want to ask you about. The first one is of uh, Ingrid uh, Newkirk, oh, the yeah. president of PETA. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. And it's a photograph of her in a meat locker, I think, with a bunch of uh, butchered pigs uh, hanging yeah. from hooks. And then she's, you know, hanging from a hook herself, and she's uh, butt naked. <laughs> she's butt naked, exactly, yeah. Another one. Uh, <laughs> You've got to tell me the story about this photograph. I mean, was this an idea that you had, that she had? How Ingrid's great. She's great to photograph. And that was my idea. So I spent two days with her. This was um, a feature for the Sunday Times magazine I was doing with um, the writer Katie Glass, a good friend of mine. So we shot all days kind of reportage photos with, with Ingrid following around when she was doing work. They were doing protests outside shops. And um, I had to shoot a portrait for the next day. And we had, there was no brief, to, you know, we had no idea what we we're going to do. And, uh, so somehow me and Katie between us came up with the idea to do that, to take her to the butchers and shoot that. That's in Smithfield's Meat Market in London, which is the massive meat market that opens, I think, about three in the morning and closes about six or seven. So we had to get down at five in the morning to do it. Now, a lot of the times doing magazine portraits, you can imagine you have an idea for something, you suggest it to someone and they shrug a little bit and, um, and don't take you up on it, you know? Mm -hmm. Ingrid, I mean... I guess you're not going to ask Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss and everyone to get naked if you're not going to do it yourself. And, uh, and Ingrid's just great. She's, you know, she's full of life and she's fun, you know, and she, she could see that it would be a good image. Um, but we didn't have permission to shoot in Smithfield's Meat Market and certainly not with the director, Peter. So we had to, yeah. we walked up and down and we asked a few of the guys. We said, hey, we're just, I'm just doing a photo of um, my friend here. We just need to get into where the pigs are. Everyone said no. And then eventually one guy said, hey, go and ask the guy right at the end. The butcher's right at the end. So we went there and before I'd even finished asking, we said, yeah, go and do whatever you want. I don't mind. <laughs> Still, I have no idea why. So we went in and she immediately started taking her clothes off. And by the time she'd finished taking her clothes off, there was 20, 30 butchers all stood around her, like big kind of cockney butchers covered in blood, um, shouting encouragement. And uh, so she jumped up on the hook. We shot 10, 15 frames. And then she got down and put her clothes on, said thank you to everyone. And we went off and... Went and had some baked beans and toast and a cup of tea somewhere. That is such an awesome story. <laughs> Did she? Great. The idea of her hanging from the hook—that was was that something that happened spontaneously, or was that was part of what you had intended? I, that, that was spontaneous. I mean, we didn't know what we were going to find when we went in there. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I mean, the idea—the idea didn't go any further than let's have you naked in the butchers. Um, so we got in there and saw the pigs. And like I said, we had to we had to work quickly. I had an assistant holding one light um, that she just stuck next to the camera lens, held it next to the camera lens, and um, and as soon as we saw that, yeah, the, the pigs just said, "It's got to be that. You've got to be hanging up and hanging on the meat hook." Um, so yeah, that was spontaneous, and that's one of those moments. I mean, you it's it's lucky to to find yourself in a situation like that. But I mean, that's what I love about doing portrait photography, and I love about doing quick magazine portraits. Is you got to work with what you've got, and that can bring up better ideas and better situations than, than you would have if you're just sitting at home staring at a bit of paper trying to, you know, make up your own ideas or your own situations. What was the reaction to that, John? In the magazine? Yeah. Um, the, that did well for me. That I got nominated for British Press Photographer of the Year, I think it was 2013, and that was one of the, there were three photos that, that I was nominated for, that was one of them. And 
Peter used it as an ad campaign. They asked me if they could use it as an ad campaign, <laughs> which they did. And then I gave uh, Ingrid one a print of it. So for being such a remarkably good subject, I, I did her a huge print and sent her um, sent her that. She's now got hanging over the desk in her office. I mean, that's that's the benchmark in terms of having a subject who's willing to go for it. You yeah, know? No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I know. You've got to be lucky with. Uh, well, I don't know. It's. Um, yeah, there's nothing worse than photographing someone who just wants to sit in a chair and they got their one look and they're just like, come on, let's let's get it, you know, let's get it done. Peter is great because they don't get profiled in the mainstream press a lot. So for them to have a big feature, of them in the Sunday Times magazine, you know, they really wanted to do something remarkable and make it stand out. So, and she's cool, Ingrid. So that was yeah, it was a, it was a lucky kind of um, you know circum group of circumstances that came together for it. There's, an, there's another interesting image that isn't as dramatic, but I, I, I was really intrigued by. And mm -hmm. it's a photograph of Lee Evans. Uh, oh, and yeah. he's on a couch and he's, you know, in a business suit. His shoes are on the floor and he's got these colorful blue uh, socks on. And there's yeah. someone looks like he's patting his, uh, checking his hair or something. Yeah. Uh, tell us, I'm not familiar with who Lee Evans is. So if you could first tell us who that is and about this photograph, because I really love that. The, the whole body language thing, uh, okay. everything about this shot, I think, is, is wonderful. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Lee Evans is a comedian in Britain, a uh, famous and fantastic comedian who's kind of like, uh, I guess he has a bit of Jim Carrey about him. He does kind of slap, not slapstick humor exactly, but he's like very physical kind of humor, you know, like a rubber face and great kind of, you know, jumps around a lot. And um, so that was shot as a lot of editorial portraits are in a hotel room. Um, there's so many magazine portraits I've done like that. You've got, they're doing the interview in the hotel room. You've got half an hour to an hour to work out how you're going to shoot it and set it up while the interview's going on. And then you've got half an hour to an hour to shoot the portraits at the end. Um, so there's only so many ways you can, um, you know, reinvent the wheel if you've just got a kind of a, you know, a bed, a chair, a window, an ensuite bathroom. Um, so that's in a hotel room somewhere. Lee Evans, I shot him in bed, first of all, I think he was lying in bed, and I was kind of above him on the bed. And then that shot, uh, I can't remember exactly the, what I was going for. I think I just wanted him on the couch, lying down, looking kind of relaxed. And I was standing above him, getting the light ready. He lay down, and then he just curled up like that. And the hand coming into Smoothin's heads is a makeup artist that they had there. Um, so that was in between setups and in between shots. And I just shot one frame as the hand came in just because, you know, it, it was, it looked great, you know? And, uh, and that, they didn't use it in the magazine, I don't think, but that was for the photo, the photo for me afterwards and the edit that, that really stood out just because like, it's weird. It's eye catching. It's a bit surreal. He's kind of staring off into space, looking kind of lost. And, uh, and he was staring off into space, kind of just, you know, not thinking about anything for five minutes in, in between setups. That's great. Right. I love, I love moments like that. It's completely unexpected. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're the great moments. I think when you shoot portraits, when you get something kind of real and it can be because someone's just not aware for a second, or it can just be because they just kind of forget themselves for a minute and just, or forget they've been photographed and just really kind of lose it, you know, lose themselves. There's a, a quote by David Foster Wallace, you know, the writer, um, that I say just about every time I photograph someone, I, I trot this quote out but it's him writing about being on TV and it's something along the lines of as soon as the camera points at you, your face starts leaping about its skull looking for its natural settings. Like you suddenly don't know what muscles make you smile or you don't know where your hands go or what to do with your arms all of a sudden. And the great 
bits for me in portrait photography, I think, is when, you know, when you've moved on from that, when, it, when that's all completely forgotten because you've just, it's a natural moment, it's a, it's a real moment. And uh, that's what I love about photographing people is, is trying to get those kind of moments where you just know it's real, it just looks real. Do you find that it's more of a challenge when you're dealing sort of one-on-one -on -one with people as you do with these editorial portraits as opposed to, you know, throwing yourself into a sort of a foreign environment like you did in Istanbul or, or elsewhere where you really have no idea where you're starting from? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's I mean, dealing one-on-one -on -one with someone can be really hard sometimes because there's no distractions. You know, if you're photographing someone for an hour and it's just the two of you, um, like I really enjoy that. And it's, it's really nice to kind of, because for me, it's a lot of that's just about getting the right social atmosphere, you know, like you're talking, you're hanging out, you're taking a few photos. Um, and I love it when, when that works, you know, it's great, but it's a completely different, it's a lot more of a discipline and a skill, I think, than what I do like somewhere like Istanbul. Um, I mean, more and more, the, the kind of photography I really like these days or that I like to do is something very simple. Um, so like you said at the beginning, that a lot of the people I photograph are interesting people. A lot of what I like doing is just trying try finding an interesting place, person or situation, and just shoot it very simply and just show it to people and say, look, you didn't know this place existed or you didn't know this person existed. And uh, so a lot of what I actually shoot, I mean, like the photography in Istanbul, I mean, that's people standing in clubs, standing against the wall, just shot with a rangefinder camera with a flash on it. You know, it's like, that's, well, to go back to it, that's absolutely no different from what I was doing working as a cruise ship photographer. It's just in a transsexual club in Istanbul. So that to me, it's, it's not, the hard bit of doing something like that isn't the taking the photos, it's, it's getting yourself into the right place. It's standing in front of the right thing to take a photo of is the hard thing. Um, which is a completely different skill from being put in front of something and saying, right, you have to take a good photo of that, do it. Um, and they're both really enjoyable and, they're, they're, uh, you know, I can appreciate doing both of them. But for my own work, it's nearly always, you know, it's nearly always the former. Find something interesting and just stand in front of it and shoot it. Well, the last question I always ask my guests is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone they've okay. long admired or someone they've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um, I guess, you know what I've seen recently that I loved um, is a guy here in London, Mimi Malika, Sicilian photographer, um, who's shooting two great projects. Now, one is the effects of the uh, mafia in Sicily, um, which is the kind of photographic equivalent, I guess, of the um, uh, Gomorrah book, um, which is fantastic, which you know. But it's the thing that he showed me recently that I loved is street photography. He's a very good street photographer. He shot a lot of stuff, mostly around the area we both live in, which is East London. And it's very, it's quite kind of abstract street photography, I guess. So not the typical, uh, you know, black and white kind of people walking by or, or kind of, you know, quirky kind of funny images. Um, he's gone right and close into little details stopping people in the street and shooting maybe just their hands or just their ear or something, you know, some going really, really in close. Um, and that looked fantastic. I thought he showed me that as a book edit recently. And I just thought that's going to be a great book. The, the thing that I really like in photography, just as a fan is when people do something that I can never do, like I can never do that kind of photography. But if I see someone shooting, you know, 
whatever it is, Israeli stone or heavy metal fans, then I know I can do that. So I'm, I'm not as impressed by it, you know. <laughs> I got but, you. Uh, but when I see someone like that who's doing something, it's different and it's clever, it's smart, you know. And, uh, and that's, like I said, it's the opposite of finding something interesting and shooting it simply. It's finding something completely banal and, and shooting it in a, in a way that makes it, you know, extraordinary. That's really hard. And he's doing that great. Just now, I think it's really impressive. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, there's my website, of course, muavidla.com. Um, Instagram, I'm trying to uh, um, do a lot just now, which I'm really enjoying, actually, Instagram. It's, I love putting words together with photos more these days. Um, but anyway, I'm muavidla on Instagram, so that, that I'm enjoying. My blog I've, um, is moremuro.com, and uh, that I'm really enjoying. Like I said, I do a lot of... Um, a lot of the blog posts I do, it's the photos, um, for example, going to Istanbul or the Maldives. I photographed a circumcision party in the Maldives. And I'm telling the story of what happened and where I was and how it came about in between the photos. Um, so that's something I love these days. And I, I want to try and do that as a book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's a hard thing to pull off, I think, doing a mix of um, photos and words. But that's um, one thing I'm really trying to get into just now. I really enjoy that. Great. Well, thanks, Mir, for making, making time for me this afternoon. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. The Candid Frame is a member of TWIP, a network of photo-related podcasts. You can find more great shows on your favorite topic by visiting thisweekinphoto.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.